Hello, I'm Josephine Burton and welcome back to the Dash Arts Podcast, seeing the world through an artistic lens. Over the course of making this series on silence, I thought a great deal about different types of silence, both the experience of being silenced and choosing to be silent. In this episode on censorship, we bring it right up to the present day, from one of the most influential writers of the 20th century who chose to edit and self-censor his own writings, to being silent as a form of protest, and to those who've been silenced by their opinions on Brexit or by COVID. To start the episode, I talked to Maisa Issa, a French-Algerian music journalist who I met a few years ago in Paris when she was covering music across the Arabic world. I picked up the phone to speak with her about the ways in which non-white French artists continue to be silenced. We ended up talking about the music scene more widely. I have been working like for years with artists uh, from all over the world, but specifically also from Europe and from the other side of the Mediterranean and from the MENA region. And I think that we can distinguish two sorts or maybe three sorts of silences. You know, I, I have noticed that a lot of people artists specifically did not choose to silence them themselves. They were silenced by what they were living, uh, politically speaking and, and socially speaking. Uh, if we do not speak about artists from the uh, coming from origins from the other from the men origin, if we speak world music wise and, and any artist expressing himself, I think the word silence is more. I would, I would say it's more vicious, yes, because it's not only linked to a social or to a political situation. I think it's linked to a to a muting society and uh, a muting society that is based on a democratic democratic basis, at least apparently. And people, a lot of artists, are discovering today that their democracy and their their liberty and their their expression is not as free as they thought. Like they thought that they could say everything, basically they can't, not all the time, not not today. Are you thinking specifically about um, some particular artists in France that you're aware of that are being, that are choosing to stay silent? You know, I think of the situation today as, as very relevant and very important and, and reflecting what is the role of art in our societies in general, but also in Europe and particularly in France. Uh, I think that France is, is, you know, living like the whole world, a very, very hard crisis in, in the cultural field and especially in music. And I noticed that a lot of artists have been, you know, silenced by what's happening. I think of people like uh, uh, Ashka, for instance, who's a, a normal, let's say, uh, entre parenthèses, uh, French artist from Arabic origin. But with what's going on, uh, he decided to make uh, a song called uh, We Can Still Sing and We Can Still Dance, On Peut Encore Danser et Chanter. And he went around the uh, public places, uh, occupying the, pla- the public place to sing it. And I think that it's not his Arabic origin that made him react in that way. It's more about what's going on in France. The silence is not only for a, a particular form of artists. Everybody is obliged to reinvent a way to express and reinvent um, resistance as well, because I think there's something of that going on today in France. Artists have been communicating on internet about it, and there, there was Camille, who is a French artist and who hasn't done any, any shows, but lately uh, have created also a series on internet of sort of a calling to keep on the fight, you know. This is how I think the articulation between silence and political situation in France is taking place. It's not no, it's nothing. It's not comparable to what's going on from the other side of the Mediterranean. 
Is it to do with the gilets jaunes? Has that played into all of the continual uh, curfews that are happening on the streets in France? Is it inability to access the public space? I think there's a, yes, I think there's a very um, clear link between what started in France with the gilets jaunes, but then was stopped by what uh, the, the international crisis of the COVID and the sanitary crisis, or, you know, but uh, something started at that point in France, socially. But what happened during the COVID and during the crisis is that artists were stopped from music, where a lot of them find the the decisions of the government uh, unfair and uh, and that linked them to the social movement not not in a direct way to gilet jaune because it's not no the gilet jaune anyway is not a very a meditized uh, uh, movement it's uh, more more like a, an underground resistance for the meanwhile in france but i think it's uh, it's it linked them to a certain idea of what would be the society they would they would live in tomorrow if they kept on doing just doing their music and not reacting to these restrictions and not reacting to to this what has been called in France unessential unessential field culture has been called as an unessential field meaning that music and theater and operas and everything that has to do with music and culture is unessential so that the venues are closed and other other places were open so they it created a, a feeling of uh, injustice and that prevailed on from what origin you are and are you from uh, north african whether you are uh, french living in the cinquième arrondissement there's something common now saying that do we have the right or not to express ourselves and, and can we keep on going out and doing our concerts in the public place. And in that extent, I think there's a mixture of, of resistance in the French society that's starting, that is taking place. It, it will be probably expressed by music like Ashka did while he was, you know, occupying uh, Théâtre de l'Odéon or going to Perpignan, going to all these cultural places and just singing. The last one was in Gare du Nord. Uh, they, you can see it on internet. It's called Ashka, uh, on peut continuer à chanter. On, we can still sing. And they just went into the, metro, the, the station of Gare du Nord, train station, and started a, an improvised concert and then disappeared. Uh, and I think it's about silencing because it's not only COVID and it's not only, it's something about, you know, a society that's muting. That's why I'm saying muting again. There are some illogical things that have been done and um, and artists have been, you know, relay, saying that in different ways on the social media and been wondering why they are not allowed to express themselves. The way Mesa discussed the situation for artists in France felt very familiar. In the UK, many of our artists have felt silenced through restrictions put in place through COVID or recent new policing regulations and also Brexit. And they've taken to social media to voice their opinions about it. Manik Govinda is a freelance arts consultant who has spoken openly about his pro-Brexit stance and how that's affected his own work. Manik, it's really lovely to uh, to speak to you. We haven't really had a chance to speak and I just thought this would be a wonderful forum in which we could talk about, I suppose, censorship and self-censorship, particularly in connection to um, what has happened in the arts, particularly over the last few years around Brexit. Well... If the question is um, how difficult was it or how easy was it to express an opinion within uh, a cultural context uh, around uh, leaving the EU, I think it was um, 
very hard because the majority of people that work in the arts and cultural sector believe in freedom of movement, believe in freedom of ideas and the free-flowing uh, relationship that one has with um, arts and culture and the products and goods and people. So when Brexit, I suppose, kind of called that into question, people were highly alarmed. And But I think the response was probably more of an emotional one rather than a rational one. And um, that started to blinker the arts institution. So it was very hard, particularly um, uh, when you're employed by organisations that uh, receive EU funding and get EU support. Were you silent or were you silenced? That line is, is, is going around in my head a lot and, and I've been thinking about it in the context of decisions around self-censorship and censorship. And did you, did you think about those issues? Did you feel that you were silenced or were you ever, did you consider being silent? Yeah, good question. I think my experience, particularly in the early days, just before the referendum and then the referendum, there's a kind of an indirect coercion that happens where um, obviously most of the arts institutions will say that they believe in freedom of expression, you know, as long as it's not slandering individuals or um, uh, or saying bad things about the organisation you work for, the institutions that you're associated with, you should be free to express your opinion. But um, that was called into question hugely um, because the blur between, you know, how much um, of your own individual autonomy you have and how much of your subject, of me as a subject, is owned by uh, organisations, whether that might be a corporate or whether that might be a charity or whether that's a cultural institution. Um, one's treading this fine line all the time of um, what is your individual voice and that's where the conflict happens. So I was feeling that I was treading that fine line between, you know, do I just keep quiet? <laughs> you know, just quietly tick that leave box and not tell anyone? Or do I express why? I decided to choose the latter, which it caused a lot of conflict. Um, it did cause a lot of um, arguments. It was difficult, um, certainly when you're you know, you're on the payroll of an organisation. So um, I think now, being a freelance and independent arts consultant, I have a lot more autonomy uh, compared to two, three years ago. So I think, yes, I've felt that sometimes I was forced to be silent and perhaps there were coercive measures to silence me you know when people are investigating your social media site and um, uh, legal advice is being sought by trustees or um, by you know directors uh, then you know that um, they are trying to perhaps use the uh, legal sanctions to silence me and i found that quite um, troubling yeah no i can i can understand why you do and did I was just thinking about people trawling through your social media. I do think social media has amplified this debate in a way, hasn't it? And it's completely changed it so that people are more public in their opinions than they ever had before, which can lead to issues around censorship or decisions around self-censorship. Perhaps it brings those arguments to the fore in a way that we never really talked about it or needed to acknowledge them before. Yeah, social media has changed <laughs> changed everything it has given voice to people you know it's 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 a platform that allows us to say what we think whether that is um, civil or vulgar or um, offensive we're constantly having to look at what the road is um, sometimes it's it can be unpleasant uh, and I you know I certainly know that 
I think what social media has done is really help um, individuals give voice and obviously we've seen that as a progressive force for good when there's uh, atrocities in human rights um, and so many um, online petitions I've signed two today against the policing bill for example it's it is a force for good um, but also in a contradictory it's also a force that can be quite negative so we mustn't lose sight that you know the Arab Spring and other uprisings you know Black Lives Matter, you know, the current women's rights and uh, women's uh, safety. Social, social media platforms are vehicles to get these messages across, to have that debate and to have those important conversations. They are public spaces now. In the context of lockdown, <laughs> they are even more so public spaces because we're free assembly and meeting other people is now almost a criminal offence. I'm interested, having gone through this experience, that you you reflecting back that you that there was this decision that you could have chosen, you could have taken to be silent, and you chose to you chose to assert your freedom of expression. Are there places where where kind of civic responsibility compel us to remain silent on issues? We should try and be civil as much as possible. There's also an argument which I read by a very good Marxist American um, female writer. Um, about the importance of vulgarity and obviously vulgarity seems a much more working-class blue-collar um, mode of speaking um, compared to the sort of civility of um, language in, in maybe more educated or middle classes. Vulgarity is also a weapon that can be used. It's obviously very messy, it's very unpleasant, but it has um, it has a voice and it's a voice that can't, shouldn't be silenced. I would much rather, for good or for bad, um, that people um, engage and then if you engage you have that argument people might be angry at you um, but you're able to put a counterpoint to that so I think we you know we should speak up remaining silent uh, sometimes tactically you may have to do that if you're under threat um, or if your um, livelihoods at risk I think um, you know in the sort of old-fashioned idea of what liberty is is that everyone has a voice and everyone has a right to express him or herself has having been having felt silenced to some degree over the last few years, has that experience changed you? Do you think as an artist, as a sort of as a civilian? I think. Um, I mean, certainly, there's times when I know I'm, I, it's best not to comment and just um, be more reflective and thoughtful. So, silence is important in that sense to have that self-reflection, to think on things before um, one just spontaneously. <laughs> kind of retorts against uh, an issue or a point of view or uh, an action. I'm probably a bit more discerning than I used to be um, uh, on where, you know, what my intervention is going to be on um, uh, on social media. A few years ago, I was maybe firing at all guns. <laughs> you know, something I, I, I found troublesome, I would just say it. Social media doesn't also represent the majority of um, people um, uh, uh, in in civil life and um, uh, public life. Um, so um, I'd much rather have conversations like this, for example. And um, I think it's very interesting um, in terms of artistic expression because, you know, there should be um, work that just allows for complexity, ambiguity, um, that can be read in different ways. Um, and my worry at the moment sometimes is that um, art can feel a bit too too propagandist, um, you know, that it has a position and therefore it's going to express that position to try and convince you to 
behave in certain ways, um, or it's just articulating a very um, enclosed sense of the world, um, which loses that complexity. And um, and it's really interesting to see writers talking, um, being much more concerned about cancel culture and um, you know how certain writers or journalists or, uh, are being vilified on social media because they have a different point of view. So the more voices that we hear in the arts to say <laughs> this witch hunt or this um, you know this call out culture is not very helpful. You know from Barack Obama to you know Salman Rushdie and Kazuo. Ishigura is very important because um, um, we still need complexity in art. Um, we can't just be black and white about issues. Whilst Manik and I might not agree about Brexit, I entirely agree with his assertion that art should be complex and messy. His suggestion that writers are now censoring themselves more led me to the playwright Samuel Beckett, who wrote such phenomenal plays as Endgame and Waiting for Godot. Beckett was a ruthless editor of his own work, and a writer who dealt with the most complex and harrowing subject matters. I spoke to Jackie Blackman, a Beckett scholar who wrote on Beckett and ethics, to find out more. Can we start from the beginning, and can you tell me the role that silence played in Beckett's, in Beckett's writing? I would love your thoughts on that. So I, ne I never saw it as silence, exactly. I saw it as a way of dealing with trauma, horror, censorship in a particular way. It was like an aesthetic that developed out of those conditions. He also, when, when he was writing Endgame, he, he met the painter Avigdor Arica. Uh, he was uh, a Jewish painter who had... Uh, been a survivor of a camp. And I think it was, you know, it, it was quite interesting, his relationship with him and, and the kind of sense one gets from Endgame of the sort of suffering of people in the camps. And I think that's what Adorno was responding to. Uh, Adorno wrote, to write poetry after Auschwitz is, you know, is barbaric in about, I think, in 1949. And then in 1966, I think in response to reading Beckett's work, he wrote, perennial suffering has as much right to expression as a tortured man has to scream. Hence, it may have been wrong to say that after Auschwitz, you could no longer write poems. So I, th I think that's not quite as well known as his first quote. You think that Adorno actually acknowledged that he'd seen Beckett's work and it had made him rethink it? Yeah, I think so. I'll just quote you a bit from, from what he said. Please do. The most far-out dictum from Beckett's endgame, that there really is not so much to be feared anymore, reacts to a practice whose first sample was given in the, co in the concentration camps. What the sadists in the camps foretold their victims. Tomorrow you'll be wriggling skyward as smoke from this chimney, bespeaks the indifference of each individual life that is the direction of history. And he obviously went on in the, same, in the same piece to write what I said to you, perennial suffering has as much right to expression as a tortured man has to scream. So that was in response to Beckett's endgame. We chatted about the many pauses and beats in Beckett's work. Jackie believes that they underline or emphasise a form of self-censorship. Do you think that um, Beckett was kind of consciously self-censoring himself? Yes, I, I would say so. You're brought up in an environment where people 
you know, need to be careful what they say or there are consequences. So I think, I think that's just like you're conditioned into self-censoring. In Waiting for Godot, I told you the character, Estragon, was named Levy. And Levy was the most common uh, French uh, Jewish name in France at the time, before, before the deportations. So it, it was like his, his character, Estragon, was Jew the everyman, you know. It was like just a, a Jew, typical Jew. And he decided to take that out. Now, whether he decided to take that out because he thought, well, maybe his play would do better if he took it out, or, or, or for what reason I can't actually tell you, nobody can tell you, but the fact is he did take it out, and if he hadn't have taken it out, what would we all feel about Waiting for God O Now? Would, would it be the famous play that it is? I don't know. That's fascinating. It is really interesting. Like, it's properly interesting, this stuff. I think, you know, producing, you know, the perfect piece was what he was about. And yes, he was, you know, thank goodness for us all, he managed to express the, the horror of the time through those perfect pieces and gave a lot of people freedom to speak, you know, showed people how to speak and be respectful at the same time. That's an amazing line. And uh, you think his writing enabled others to voice themselves? Absolutely. There's, there's no doubt about that. You know, he was very courageous in putting out stuff that, that nobody would have put out anyway and thought they would have got anywhere. You know, he was just, he was courageous in, in holding out for his, his particular aesthetic. He just, this, this was how he expressed himself. And it was a headline act. And back to Manic on the role and place of silence in art. I think having worked with so many live arts practitioners and performance artists, um, the idea of presence, um, physical presence, can say so much more sometimes in the particular context of work where there's nothing, you know, the voice is not um, being used, but just the, the, the physicality of, of that artist in in a particular space and that can be very powerful there's um an american um east asian artist called tishing say who uses silence uh, a lot um and he would do these year-long performances which are incredibly haunting one, one performance where um in the 80s um where he just punched into um a factory um time clock uh, every hour on that hour for a whole year and um, just watch the passing of time doing that action. Art that says nothing, verbally, orally, can be so powerful um, when it's just a simple action. Um, so non-verbal um, you know, silence um, doesn't have to be um, not talking. Um, um, when none of us are silenced in that sense. You know, we're always marking time and space. Uh, I, I'm appreciating a lot of painting at the moment. Um, it's it's non-verbal. Um, it's it's an expression through um, physical materials, and um, a lot of younger artists I know are being much more subtle about their work, where it kind of um, verges on surrealism, uh, where it verges on the absurdism of life, and um, work that is less political, um, work that is has another form of um, freedom and expression. Uh, I'm finding that a lot more engaging these days.
It's interesting that you've gone there from, from when I asked you about, because having read about the um, policing bill last night and this all this stuff around noise levels, which seems to be a really important part of the police bills, like a lot of people are very upset about the noise decimal levels that are being made around Parliament with Steve Bray and his megaphone, and it's all very disruptive. And I was going to share with you that we, we're hoping to try and speak to this uh, Turkish protester called Erdem Gunes, who did these silent protests. And I was going to say, maybe we're going to see a whole lot of these silent protests now happening around ironically i was going to say the silence to me is extremely political oh completely i think um, you know at the moment it's been uh, in many countries being forced to wear masks uh, uh, in, in this pandemic that already has um, a symbolic image of of being gagged being silenced being censored um, and um, anti-censorship campaigns constantly uses the, 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 that image of uh, the gagged individual um but also, um, you know, the, the noise and chaos and disruption are um, usually responses against um, state aggression. When uh, the police or um, when a government starts to come down on people, then people do retaliate sometimes. We did manage to speak to Erdem Gundels. We tracked him down in Poland, where he'd been living for the past three years, to speak to us about his incredible silent protest in Turkey in 2013. I would love to hear a little bit more about uh, your work as an artist um, and why you chose to use silence as part of your standing protest in the Gezi Park protests. The Gezi Park protests start... And the government use uh, so much power and police brutality, and then they announced the uh, Park protest is over. After that day, I was there and stand still uh, eight hours in the middle of the Taksim Square. Did you choose at that moment to stay? You decided after they cleared, the authorities cleared the park and you chose to stay by yourself and remain standing. I, I didn't think that. My body decided and everything was tried during the Gezin movement. The people singing, doing yoga, doing many things. But the government was... Death, or they don't want to see, they don't want to hear, they don't want to talk. They just blaming others, the people who was in the Gezi Park as a protester, provocateur, or a terrorist, or marginal. It means that people try to tell their reason. Uh, they use many ways and. I think why I my body choose the silence because uh, sometimes silence tells more than words. Uh, my aim is not going there and uh, make silence protest. My aim is make protest. And then and then did did people come to join you, Adem, to stand with you in silence? Yeah, it needs um, three hours or five hours. I'm not sure, but um, end of the day, three hundred people join, and the protest finished. 
around uh, two two o'clock in the morning because I started uh, around six, and because police wants to take the who's standing there. And did people, when you were standing there in the in in silence in the square, being joined by people, did the police come to ask you what you were doing, or was it did was it very clear and symbolic that you were protesting in silence? Yeah, they they come maybe one and a half hour later, and then they ask me some question, but I don't know, I I didn't give answer, and. Um, they start to check my backpack and uh, they want to see what I have in my pocket or this is uh, something like actually wrapping some someone because they didn't ask my permission and it was um, not good days many people died they didn't judge this uh, charged that police and um, I was uh, really angry at that time maybe I couldn't find a word to tell and then I keep my silence maybe because they want if I say something they make uh, some smoke change and then put me in jail. I don't know, really. I didn't think why I didn't talk at that moment. I think it's maybe, maybe it's about, about myself because I start theater, but my talk, uh, my read, uh, the, the text, it was not good. I, I'm not a verbal person. Uh, I act with my body. I dance with my body. I express my thoughts with my body. Maybe that's the reason I prefer to not talk because my body express more than the verb. So that's that's really interesting to hear, Adam. So it sounds like you were. Uh, in this moment of crisis, you you went as an artist, you went to the place which you were most secure, which was your physical presence, not your voice. What, what, is, what is amazing to me about what, what, what you d- did on that day, Adem, is that you took, the con- you took the control of the situation. You know, you, you made the decision to be silent. It was not that, you know, you were silenced by the authorities. It was, uh, you know, you took that power. Did it feel powerful at the time? Uh, actually, I understand how it was powerful after two days later because I, I didn't know what's happened really. I just saw some TV and some people around me coming for supporting. Uh, I didn't thought it's give people hope again. Um, I have one small hope, and I maybe share with other people and other people. I believe non-verbal things are more important than the verb, uh, verb, verb, and uh, or verb, because. Uh, 
um, nonverbal things was connect our life before two years old, uh, like love or miss or lost or fear or something unknown. That's the reason the silence connects with that source. That's the reason the silence is much more important than the verb or shouting or break down the window. I found Erdem's use of silence as a force for protest amazingly inspiring. He truly believes that conscious, non-verbal action can have more impact than words. At the other end of the spectrum, Maisa told me that the enforced silence on artists in France, imposed by the government, has been unifying and has also been a catalyst for change. There's also manifest uh, of, uh, of certain artists that came together to say that they were not okay with not being uh, able to continue to sing, continue to express themselves, etc. And a couple of, of manifests have been uh, signed uh, by many artists from different fields and different origins and so yeah, something is going on, definitely. I don't think we are in the same place in the UK. There are many freelance artists who have not been able to receive money, uh, and but we are not organised in the same way. And I and I wondered, as I was listening to you, I was thinking about, you know, those times when I was in Paris, you know, in the 80s and the 90s, there was always protests, you know, people were always marching, there was always strikes. I, I think in France, you've always been better at organising yourselves uh, than in the UK. <laughs> That's my immediate impression. Well, I think I think that there in France there is a une culture de la manifestation. I think there's something in the French culture about manifesting, about saying what's not going on right and going to the on the road for it. And I think the the COVID crisis stopped put France in silence, on mute France in different sectors, not only in culture. There's still this form of injustice. It exists, and basically people who are really not in a good situation before COVID are even worse today. But there's also sort of a, and people are trying to invent, artists are trying to invent solutions as well for, for them to keep, to stay alive and, and, and live streamings and, and different ways of continuing the create, the creation and the, and the creativity they have. It's like when uh, some artists that didn't really care about politics or didn't really, were not very into social issues after what's going on now are starting sort of, some of them are starting to, you know, to express themselves differently, but not all of them. Huh? Some others were completely silenced. Do you think that, um, that the, the kind of the COVID crisis and all it is doing to silence the arts has overwhelmed all the other subjects? So is it the case now that, the, the kind of the, the fractures in society, the fact that some voices are louder than others, that's less important, do you say? Do you think it has unified the issues or they, have, they haven't gone away, presumably, the fact that some, some artists are silenced? No, no, of course, they, they haven't gone away. And that's what I was trying to say earlier. I think it didn't go away at all. I think some, simply, I think that it, on, on a certain extent, there's a, new voice that's coming now that is more democratic to all these artists. 
uh, whether they asked to be silenced, they would not be silenced anymore. And I think themselves, they would not silence themselves. I mean, both silences and whether it's a, a self-censorship or uh, an outside political decision to to silence the culture and the reaction uh, is growing. And I'd, I'd like to remember an old sentence, which is not from me, but I love it. Uh, Gitri, the folk singer, the, the American folk singer, you know, uh, who said uh, with his guitar saying that this is an anti-fascist uh, machine. These words should, you know, they linger on, I mean, at least in my soul. And I think music is an anti-fascist machine. I think that culture is one. And I think that our societies today in certain measures have been, you know, like have certain uh, similarities with what was going on back then. Uh, we're talking about uh, the fascist era, era. but uh, not as clear and not as uh, open and not as uh, not at all the same story but you know it takes different faces when it comes to when it comes to being a fascist you can be fascist with a big smile so you cannot just keep people uh, and musicians and 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 artists and and culture out of the the balance they have a very clear role in the society and the, whether, whether they are completely into politics and socially implicated or, or whether they're only expressing themselves their role is to keep the light on it's been quite a trip through the world of silence over the last few weeks. I've met artists who've been silenced and have broken silences across Europe. I pay tribute to them all, to their extraordinary and ongoing work, often being a voice in the quiet, working to keep the light on. My thanks on this episode to Adem, Manik, Maisa and Jackie, and my wish for us all is that we should use silence, but not be silent. Ashka's Danser Encore, which Maisa mentioned, has become a lunkdown anthem. YouTube is full of flash mob versions from across France. He very kindly gave us permission to use his song to close out our podcast series. We're taking our own short break of silence for a few weeks as we prepare for our next series. You can catch all the episodes from this series and any of our previous episodes on our website or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the Dash Arts podcast, please do share loudly and leave us a review. It helps us stay visible and would mean the world to us. The Dash Arts podcast was produced by Rachel Head. I'm Josephine Burton, and we'll be back soon with more conversations. Thank you for listening. Jamais docile ni vraiment sage, nous ne faisons pas allégeance à l'aube en toutes circonstances. Nous venons briser le silence. Et quand le soir à la télé, Monsieur le Bon Roi parlait, venu annoncer la sentence, nous faisons preuve d'irrévérence, mais toujours avec élégance. Oh.
Passer nos vies sur 